Hello, welcome to episode four of Therapy Tales with me, Dawn Walton, a human therapist, and I'm Jess, a dog behaviourist. Wow, that's the first time you've done that. <laughs> I got it right. <laughs> Fourth time to charm. Some of us now, are slow learners. <coughs> now we've we've just done that thing where we had a conversation and we're kind of like we can't talk because we have to talk on the podcast. Um, <laughs> so what was our subject today? What are we talking about? Humans and not going to therapy and <laughs> thinking that they are extra special because no one can fix them, which is exactly the same with dog owners. They think they, they call me and they say, oh, I don't know how it's going to be. You're, you're, my dog's like really bad. You're not going to manage to fix it. And yeah. they come along and they go, oh, that wasn't so bad. Yeah. So um, it's really a big risk to take yourself to somebody who's an expert and lay yourself out there. But the actual real risk is that they then say they can't help you because as long as you kind of try youtube and um reading books and talking to friends and things like that then if it doesn't work it can be just that you haven't read the right thing or done the right thing if you go to somebody like jess or like myself who are absolutely experts in our field who have a good track record of helping and changing and then they say to you i can't help you then you take it as I can't be helped as opposed to that individual can't help you and it's a really common thing in psychology where psychologists who work to diagnosis and labels will go you don't fit my box therefore I can't help you and a client, I've had many clients who come to me and, and been told all sorts of things that they're the worst case a psychologist has ever seen and you know they're always going to have to struggle and I'm like nah, that's not true it's just that person doesn't isn't the right person to help you. And I think we were talking about this yesterday about um, who's the right person. And I'm not the right person for everybody. You're not the right person for everybody. But we understand that somebody is reticent to come to us because they're like, what happens if you can't help me? If you're good. It's taking a leap of faith, isn't it? It is. It is. And it, it's, it's down to us as individuals to respect that. And, you know, I can't work with every client. Not every client is... I'm not the right person for everybody, but it's my onus to be able to help my clients with that and help them find the right person if it's not me, not for me to go to them, ah, nah, you're not committed that to therapy. That doesn't happen very often, does it? No. no. And the same with me. It doesn't happen no. very often where I think I can't help this person. I've never had it, actually. But, you know, technically it's possible. <laughs> but, you know, I don't, I don't think people are broken. You don't think dogs are broken. You know, we can, we can help. But it's obviously a human condition where we're raised to believe that, you know, that, that, that this is the worst thing ever and no one can help us. Because yeah. it's so common, it happens so much, that there's obviously, it's, something happens when we're growing up that makes us believe that that's... Yeah, I think it's back to that comparison thing that we talked about, is we're always comparing ourselves to everybody else, but because we can't read minds, we always assume everybody else is more together than us, everybody else is more sorted than us. And actually, we were talking about this with a, with a particular situation where... If you have somebody, so, you know, I have clients who come to me who experience massive transformation and then they're just raving about it and totally different people. And then you have somebody else who's thinking of coming to see me but goes, you know, well, if, if it works for them and it doesn't work for me, then how broken must I be? And that's a massive risk. And it's the same with the people bringing their dogs to you. You know, it's like all these people say how great Jess is and how she's changed their lives and their relationship with their dogs. Well, if it doesn't work for me, there's, there's nothing else then. I'm totally broken. Do you think part of that's admitting failure, that you should be able to fix your own brain and fix your own dog? And yeah. if, you, if you can't do it, then... And um, 
what were you saying about mechanics? Like if you if, if you can't fix your own car. Yes. So um, you know, I always I'm always trying to find ways to help people understand that therapy isn't a lifetime commitment because it isn't with me. You know, it's two to three sessions, which is a period of six weeks, and then I never need to see you again. You know, you're good. You can go on your life. And I'm always trying to find ways to explain this because it's so different. Because we're not we're not just talking ad infinitum. We're, we're, we're reprogramming your brain. You're reprogramming the owners and the dogs. We're making physical permanent changes in everything we do. So I think we need to sell that more. The other day I said to you, somebody said something really great to me. It was um, that she thought she was coming to get information filled in, the bits filled in that she was missing. But then she said, actually, we're doing a complete rewrite. Yes. I wonder if we should maybe put that out more as a marketing thing, that actually it is, a, it is starting from scratch rather than coming to get little bits of information. Yeah, we're yeah. Doing, I, we're doing a rewrite. I think it is in many ways. So so when I try and struggle, you know, I've looked at things like, well, when you go to a hairdresser, you know, you have to pay lots of money to have your hair done, and then you have to go back six to eight weeks later and pay all over again. You know, with me, you pay and about the same price as it can be for a hairdresser. And you never need to come back again. But the other one that I think is, is really, um, really works for me as an idea is if you've got a problem in your car, you go to a mechanic, you go to a garage. You don't sit there feeling terrible that you should be able to fix your car yourself because you go, <laughs> I don't know enough about fixing cars. I need to go find an expert who will help me fix my car. But equally, once he's fixed your car, you don't expect him to say, can you come back every month so that we make sure the car runs OK? You kind of expect it to work and never need to see him again. Well, why are therapists scary, though? Because I, I wouldn't feel like... Like obviously, my mechanics intimidating because I don't know how to speak mechanics, right? Yes. So I've just handed my car in right there. Yeah. And I didn't even want, I didn't even want to. Um, I was embarrassed to say that I asked him to fill the tires as well because I had a phobia about that. Okay. Like, I blew up in my face once. I just don't like doing it. Right? Okay. Seems a reasonable phobia then. I suppose so. Yeah. So um, yeah, and and he knows better than me, yes. right? And but why are therapists scary? Because if you if I introduce somebody as this is my dentist. They wouldn't be like, oh, I better, I better not smile because I might see my teeth, right? <laughs> I would. But when I say therapist, like, about you, <laughs> um, uh, they immediately think that you're a little bit scary because you, you're going to read their minds and you're going to tell them exactly what's wrong with them. Yes. So um, people assume that therapists know everything. Um, we don't. People assume that therapists can read your mind just by looking at you and will sussed you out and weighed you up and will be judging you. And to a certain extent, and the same with dogs, like I can. But I also have an acceptance of, and I suppose you can as well, you're able to tell. So I, I can see people's insecurities. That's why my book's called We're All Screwed Up and That's Okay, right? Because um, I know everybody has something, right? So um, when I meet people, I can see past what they show me to what's going on. And that actually makes it a lot easier because I'm not judging you because I know you've got your stuff, like I've got my stuff. So I think the fear with therapists is that psychologists certainly will set themselves aside from you will label diagnose and treat the label and the diagnosis like you would if you went to see a doctor they, they diagnose and they treat the diagnosis they very rarely treat the person so or the um, symptom or, or whatever you know <laughs> and then they'll tell you if you're a woman that you need to lose weight and when we do last period even if your arm's falling off you know it's like so there, is, there are certain things certain professionals who do put themselves in deliberately in that white coat syndrome basically so yeah, when you meet somebody, it would be normal to kind of go, oh, you know, they're, they're, they're an expert. I don't know how anybody can be an expert on you. It's not possible. I cannot be an expert on you. I don't live with you. I haven't lived your life. I am an expert on helping 
people sort themselves out. I can definitely help you. I don't can't know you. I can't even know the effect of what I do on you because that happens after the session. I don't know how it affects your life. I can't, you know, I know how things have affected my life, but that doesn't mean I know how they affect your life. And it's the same, same with you. You know, you, you have to get good at doing an assessment when a new client comes to you. Like what's going on with the dog? You're kind of going to use clues as to some of the things that you know you could help them with. You know, things like the feeding them when they're on the walks and things like that, that are kind of common things that can make well, a big difference. I can kind of tell about the dog's personality, because dogs are very good at not lying. So humans are lying all the time, yes. right? Because we're yeah, able yeah. To, to think this is how she is. This is how she behaves. This is how she, who she is. So humans go around with this. You called it a mask? Yes. So wear this mask. Um, but dogs are very good at being a bit more open. So this is who I am, yep. right? But then they've got the, what did you call it? The, right, the core attributes, the, the clay, clay. The clay. They've got the clay stuff that happens as they're learning. And I can also see that stuff. So yeah. I can see their, I can meet them and I can tell their personality. So one of the things that I often say, you know, with puppies is people phone me all the time with my puppies biting. That's a very, right. very common thing trainers get. My puppies yep. biting, right? Puppies biting the kids, puppies biting me. That's natural behavior. But then all the things they've tried will help that dog have experiences. Yep. Now, so here's the here's the cool part. If you've got an introverted puppy and you scream and the puppy bites you, the introverted puppy will go, oh my goodness, I hurt you. I'm going to stop. Right. Right? So screaming yeah. will work with yeah, the puppy. Yeah. But if you've got an extroverted puppy and you scream, he goes, oh, I, hurt, I caused you pain. I'll use that information because the next time I've got a ball, I don't want you to have it or food. Oh, okay. I can then cause you pain. Cool. So you've got, your, <laughs> you've got your core, and then you've got the experiences. So when, when ah. someone says to me, how do I stop my puppy biting? Well, I need to know what you've done already. Yep. Because that's going to affect how the puppy's clay has been molded yep, so yep. far. So we've got a lot of different factors. You've got what the human's done, yep. how the human behaves. If you've got an extroverted puppy with an introverted human, yes, is a pushover, a bit, a bit passive, that's a tricky situation. Yeah. Um, and, and all the different combinations of that you can have. Yeah, yeah. So... Um, yeah, dogs are good at not lying. Yeah. Humans are good at covering up their true feelings on it. Yeah, so um, so you have an extra point of information from me, right? Because if you ask the human, they are unlikely to tell you things, some things that they've done, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but you will be able to see a certain amount of stuff from how the dog behaves. I'm always the last thing they do. Yeah. So they'll go through all the things. Yeah. So, Right, my puppy, puppy's not house trained. I'm gonna rub its nose in it. Yeah. Don't ever do that. Why did Why did that even become a thing? Right. That, that's punishment, yep. which has got no correlation to the thing that it did. Just how to confuse a puppy. Yeah. Abuse, right? Right. So, um, we, we're gonna try all of these things that they've heard about and seen on TV and heard from their grandparents and being told by their neighbors, friends, dogs, children, right? Yep. And then they phone me. Yeah. So I'm the last person people see for therapy. I, they've often seen lots of people before me. I very, very rarely get somebody for the first time come and see me as a therapist. Really, really unusual. Um, because I, you know, on paper I look like a woo-woo therapist. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a qualified counsellor in that sense. So um, people think, and, you know, originally my qualification was in cognitive hypnotherapy. People don't That's hear the cognitive one, bit. They hear the hypnotherapy bit, right? Which is um, put you in a trance, knock you out, and do stuff to your head, which I can't imagine how that could ever work. I mean, and people out there are like, hypnotherapy works. Hypnotherapy did nothing for me. Yeah. So you've got that really um, yeah. black and white sort of. And you've got hypnotherapists who just read from a script, 
and it will work. Of course, it'll work on a splat again approach, you know. I mean, so, um, for example, one of the classic things in hypnotherapy is what's called a deepener. So we get into a relaxed state and we make it deeper and deeper and more relaxed. And a common way of doing that is to talk at you, because obviously hypnotherapy is talking at you. And you take steps down the steps, and at the bottom is a big, cosy, comfy bed with a big, you know, feather pillow, a big feather squishy duvet. And and I would talk you through stepping down further and further as you get closer to this big, squishy bed, right? I'll, I'll shut up now just in case I'm sounding relaxing. But um, <coughs> I have an allergy to feathers, right? So if you're telling me to walk closer to a bed with feather pillows on it, I'm going to be thinking, I'm going to be getting a cold if I go near that. Oh, I see. Right? So they don't really rely on feedback. No, they don't get any feedback ah, because okay. you've got your eyes closed wow. and you're in a trance, right? So you don't get any feedback about how that's registering with the person. So for you, you might think, oh, yeah, big squishy bed. That's... Which is why it's going to fail half the time, right? That's why it's going to fail half the time. So you could also say, you know, imagine yourself on a golden sand beach with sun warming your skin. Well, maybe last time I was on the beach, I got badly sunburned, which I actually did. You know, anything. I mean, yeah. you could have been attacked by a stranger. Yeah, or... yeah, anything could have happened. So in my head, I'm going, no, 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 I don't want to go there. But you're just talking at me, so you have no idea this is happening. Wow. And then I don't want to let you know that you failed, and I don't want to feel like I failed. So I'm going to open my eyes, I'm going to say thank you very much, and I'm not going to go back again. So you qualified as a hypnotherapist? No, I qualified as a cognitive hypnotherapist. What's the difference? So a bad naming is the first difference. Right. <laughs> so it was founded by a guy called Trevor Sylvester. And he looked at all these different therapy types, including NLP, which is Neuro Linguistic Programming, which is basically the language of the brain. If you want to talk to your brain, you need to speak a language, which is visualizations, things like that. That's what NLP is. He looked at um, language patterns that come from hypnotherapy because it has patterns like um, direct suggestion. You will feel more relaxed or you will feel very relaxed. It's direct authoritarian. Now, if you're not feeling very relaxed, you're going to go, nope that's not working or i could say indirectly you might find you're feeling more relaxed well i might actually i might be i'm not really sure am i more relaxed than i was it's not that clear for me to say yes or no right so a rather lot, than telling you're asking a question rather than telling you're suggesting i call it wiggle room you're saying things where your brain can fill in the gaps so you might find so um I, you know instead of telling a child to hold a pencil this way where they can go that doesn't work you go you might find it easier to hold it this way and then, what's the odds of trying, right? They've got wiggle room. So, so he used language patterns. He used, he came up with his own way of talking called word weaving, which is where we use language in this way. And he doesn't use scripts. We don't use that. I mean, that we were trained to do stuff eyes closed, but you don't need to put people in a trance. The assumption is trance is an everyday state. Like if I ask you to think about breakfast, you're now in a trance because you're not here. The minute you're not present, you're in a trance. So the reason it's called hypnotherapy is because we're working with the subconscious, which is where all the problems come from. If things were a thinking problem, nobody would ever need clients because we think our way through it, right? So it's a brain switch off state. And the reason it's called cognitive hypnotherapy is because we use you and your brain to change your brain. So I work with you, not making you work with my way of working. But he named it badly. He stuck with the naming, <laughs> can't change it now. And so everybody hears, I'm a cognitive hypnotherapist. They don't hear cognitive. Well, if they do, they think I'm CBT. Yes. So it's either I'm a cognitive behavioral therapist in people's minds, which I'm not, because that's working with the thinking brain. That has something like a 46% success rate in six months. No. Um, or I'm a hypnotherapist, which is woo-woo, stick you in a trance, talk at you, which doesn't work for a lot of people. But actually, my way of working 
is 73% of people get better in six weeks with the same measures as you use in CBT. But I'm woo-woo an alternative therapy. It's a short space of time, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's ridiculous. Um, so um, the, I was speaking to the, the group uh, that I'm associated with, um, the CFBA, and I was asking them about how, why we don't use subconscious more in dog training, because that's what I've been playing with, with the vibration collars, using mm -hmm. it on the subconscious level rather than the conscious level with the dogs. And they said, well, we just call that conditioning. Yes. <laughs> I'm like, okay. But we're not, we're not really, there's not really much text <clears throat> talking about it, because it's a real difficult one to quantify. Yeah. Right? And actually, I think it's, it levels the playing field, because I think subconscious versus conditioning in dogs, so subconscious and human, Versus conditioning dogs is essentially the same thing. Well, yeah, but we're not con we're not conditioning as well on the surface when the dog's making a choice to do a thing. Yeah. So the idea is that the choice isn't there. Yeah. And it's not about not giving them a choice or force, but it's more about this is a thing that happens regardless of you, your input or not. Yeah. So an example would be dogs recalled. So we have a really good recall. Yeah. Dogs coming to me. Mm -hmm. And as he's coming to me, I vibrate the collar. So yep. the first time he's ever felt it, and he goes, well, this is a thing that's happening. So yep. what? Right? So it's not aversive, it's not pleasant, it's nothing. It's just a thing that's happening. Yep. And as we keep doing that, we're conditioning him to feel that, but we're working on a, an area where he's not got anything to do with it. So what happens when I take the recall away and just use the vibration? He still comes. Because yes. he goes, oh, this, is, this, this means come, right? Because yep. it's happened to me. So yes, it is conditioning, but it's more than just conditioning. Because conditioning to me is two two parts. The other part was would be where the dog's got a conscious choice about yeah, and that's semantics, making, isn't it? Making a choice to do something yeah. rather than having no choice in it. Does that yeah, make sense? It, it, but it, it is semantics. So, um, for example, um, let's say uh, every time you went to the dentist with your mum when you were a kid, afterwards you went to the cafe across the road and you had a pastry, you had a nice cake in the cafe. That was your treat, that was your special time with your mum that you had after you'd been to the dentist. So you associated going to the dentist with having this nice treat with your mum. You also associated something that maybe wasn't the most pleasant experience with having this nice experience afterwards, right? Now, many years later, your mum's died long, long time ago, um, and you have to go and do something that's unpleasant. And afterwards, you reward yourself with a nice treat. And when you're feeling sad and unhappy and you need to feel better, you reward yourself with a nice treat because you have an association wired into your brain and we are programmed to learn. So we programmed that my mum loved me because she gave me these nice treats when I was having a hard time. And so now, it makes me feel loved to have a nice treat. Simple, very mechanical actually. It's not a conscious choice to do it. Mm -hmm. It's just your brain's created that association. Now, I can easily remove that association because actually it wasn't the cake that made that special. It was that you did it with your mum. Mm -hmm. So we could replace the cake with a teddy bear or going and buying a magazine or going for a walk down by the beach and it would still have the same meaning but without the need to eat nice foods when you feel down. Right, so, but that, that's a simple, it is conditioning in the sense that we've talked about. It, it's because the association, like a vibration is associated with coming back to you. Association is not the greatest experience, have a nice special moment that's surrounding food. So emotional eating 
almost always comes from that. The Age Concern did a survey a few years ago about top five memories that you have of your grandparents. Number one memory was the food that you had when you went to your grandparents' house. And our brains are too primitive to understand love until they're fully developed. So we have to attribute that feeling to something tangible and significant. So we attach it to food, or we attach it to punishment, or we attach it to, to behavior, rather than kind of being able to go, oh, this was just lovely. And, and that creates a conditioning. But as a human, you have no conscious control over that. You can't make a decision just by now saying, right, well, I'm not going to eat food when I'm feeling down. Because <laughs> the minute you're feeling down, all your thinking brain's gone, and you're just like, I feel rubbish, I'm going to get a tub of ice cream out. But then that was done to us. Excuse the chair moving in the background. That was done to us, right? Yes. So um, the mother is in charge of the child. Yes. She did that. But she didn't know she was doing that. Yeah, she wasn't doing it on purpose. She no. just did it. That's yeah. Something. Oh, so hang on. So is the conditioning, you have the person that's doing the conditioning has to know about it. <laughs> well, it could be. So you could deliberately do that. And, and yeah. I guess, in you know, we were talking... Well, I'm just trying to figure out the words on my head. Because we've yeah. got association, we've got subconscious, and we've got conditioning. Yeah. I'm trying to figure out what, what it is that I'm actually doing yeah. um, with the dog. So it's like I am conditioning, but I feel like I'm doing something that's lower so you're doing, than cognitive. Do you know what I mean? You're doing... Yeah, and you are. You're doing something lower than cognitive with the dogs. And you're doing something cognitive with the humans because it doesn't work the same way with the humans they have to learn and they have to override their kind of anxieties about my poor dog and but, things like but that the, the, yeah but with the child that was being exposed to the um nice treat after yep. the dentist that's um not cognitive on the behalf of the child no it's just not cognitive at all on, on and it's actually because of a lack of cognitive development because the child is not capable of going, this is about love. So we have to be really careful when we um, want to be nurturing what we're actually doing with humans as well as with dogs. Yep. So we spoke about, I don't know if I, I can't remember if I spoke about <laughs> it or wrote about it, but something happened where, yeah, we spoke about it yesterday. So it was um, nurture the, the behavior in the moment. So that's all we've got with dogs. Because with humans, we get the, the chance to go back and say, well, that thing that happened 10 years ago, yes, we so, just cannot do that with a dog. So the, the, we had the puppies, and we had them in the school. And um, the kids were all super excited. And the rule is you sit on the floor with a puppy so that you don't risk dropping the puppy. So kids were being generally quite good. Um, kids were doing all sorts of things like chasing the puppies. And, you know, the adults were saying, don't do that, stop it, you're not allowed to. And they're just repeating the same thing because the kid can only learn from experience they don't understand when i say you know if you chase the dog it's a bad thing they're not going to listen to you they can't because they can't actually understand that because their brain doesn't understand unless they naturally get it but it's so important that, that parents know this it should be like a, a government like, <laughs> well it's not even par par parents don't know it schools don't know it no adult knows it so these adults in the school had no idea about this because that's not what their experience was yeah. so when when i'm stood there with the kid and the kid's chasing the child the, the puppy under the pram i'm like look when it goes into the pram leave it there because it's chosen to go somewhere that it wants to go away from you how would you like it if you went and hid somewhere and somebody came right in your face and said get out of there that would and they were like oh i don't want that right and i said now when you kind of go oh at the dog do you want me to go, what do you do? And, and the kid backed off. So that's the personal experience. That's the so personal he's, experience. He's understanding 
that I didn't like that John when John girled at me. Yeah. Therefore, I shouldn't girl at the puppy. Yeah. Right. So he can't understand through words. He can't understand me saying don't growl at the puppy. It doesn't like it. He can learn through action. He can learn through action. But we have for millennia taught children through words. Yes. Don't do that because yeah. and the kids just go and I have no idea yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah. They can only learn through experience. They can only learn through experience. So are we getting screwed up because we're being raised by people who are talking to us rather than showing us? Very often. But well, because. We're getting screwed. All kids are screwed up anyway, but the the parents just don't understand how this works. So, um, for example, you know, get your shoes on because we're going to be late. That's a classic part of um, what happens with kids, right? Get your shoes on because we're going to be late. Kids doing something else. Kids don't know what late means. Kid doesn't care that you're going to be late. No consequences to them at all. Parent needs to get to work. Needs to get the kids to school. Stressed. Getting really but the stressed. The kids going to understand that the the parents change its behaviour. But they're not going to know why. So it's our default state to learn whether we're loved or not. We talked about this yesterday. So mum's getting angry because mom's I'm not getting, getting my shoes on. Because I'm not getting my shoes on. But I don't know that mum's getting angry because we're going to be late because I'm not getting my shoes on. Mum's getting angry at me and I don't know why. Right? So it's a bit like we talked about when you're saying to the dog, calling their name, whatever they do, you know? They don't know exactly what it is. There's no cause and effect. There's no direct link. And even if they did know why, they don't understand why being late is a bad thing. So what you do, so there's a really neat little trick that you can do as a parent when kids are kind of younger-ish that uses this experience-based learning. And you can go, what are you teaching me, right? So you, you do it like in this way. So you say to the kid, put your shoes on. Kid goes, no, right? You go, oh, we're learning how to say no. Hmm. I, I'm not sure I know how to say no properly. Let me see if I can work it out. Right. Now, I could say no for things like, can I have those sweets? No. Hmm. I, I'm not sure I get it. Can you try again? Can you put your shoes on? Now the kid goes, that's not how it's supposed to work. <laughs> I don't like that. And they'll put their shoes on. It's magic. It's, it's an amazing thing. So if you do, if I learn the child's behavior mm-hmm. and I reflect it back at them and the child realizes the impact of the behavior, they will change their behavior. Wow. And it's really fun. Did you do this with your daughter? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, she'd come back downstairs when she'd gone to bed and like make a fuss. And you're like, you're teaching me that it's okay for us to not do what we're told. And that's cool because you told me you wanted this and I don't have to do that. I didn't realize I don't have to do that. This is fantastic. I don't have to do anything you told me to do. Great. And they kind of go, so there's a really backfiring. Yeah. So there's a really fun example. Um, I went with my friend and her grandson to stay in a hotel and my, me and my daughter. And she was, oh God, she must've been about five or six at the time. So the lad was like a year or two younger. And we're sat in the lobby, we've had a nice hot chocolate, and we're away to go swimming. And the boys put tissue on the table, and I say to him, pick tissue up at the table. And he goes, no. And my daughter goes, ooh, you don't want to do that. <laughs> right? She just stands there and goes, don't do that. And I say, no. Oh, we're saying no about things. So we could say, should we go swimming? And I could say, no. Are you telling me that's what? Oh, that's really great. I can do that. And my daughter's. And I go, um, do you want to pick the tissue up? And he just reaches out and picks the tissue up and puts it in his pocket. And my daughter's got this smug look on her face. It's just like, told you, shouldn't say no. But, you know, it, it makes it <coughs> more of a game rather than the massive frustration you get from repeatedly telling your child something. And it must break your heart, though, to see the way parents carry on. It doesn't break my heart at all because if you don't know, it's like unconscious incompetence, right? If you don't know what you don't know. So I totally get it. And it's not in any of the parenting books because they tend not to think of the way the brain develops. This is purely That's using. the most important part, isn't it? They do, but they don't think of it in this context. So right. people don't understand how our brains learn. 
and how that affects us as adults. I do. I've seen over 1,200 clients over the last eight years. I know exactly what childhood events, and it's not about a good or a bad childhood. It's nothing to do with that. It's just purely how the brain learns. And it's like you with dogs. It's not about good or bad dog owners. It's just if you understand a few of the simple things, and then you're all going, oh, of course, right? Handling skills. <laughs> but it's just like, so for me, it's when I work... You should up, do a child handling course. You should, well, I've got a parent coaching pack for exactly that reason. So I work with the parents and I help them and I work with the kids as well because this is such it's such simple stuff and it makes it so much more fun. Instead of thinking your kid's not listening to you, getting frustrated, get off your Xbox, get off your Xbox now, time for dinner, get off your Xbox and just like thinking the kid doesn't care, doesn't listen to me. Because just, it forces then, isn't yeah. it, fighting against each other? Why would, the, why would the kids stop doing something that's fun for the sake of something they don't want to do? There's no motivation in that. It doesn't make any sense to them to do that. But as a parent them not listening to you feels like they don't respect you as a parent and then, oh, now all we've got then is punishment then you've got punishment right because that's all you can go to yeah, I'm, I'm so frustrated my child's not listening to me i've got to i've got to hurt it i've got to or i've got to take the xbox away yeah, from so it punishment these days is very rarely the hurt no you i know. mean like hurt emotionally yes yeah. take it away from it so that it, it has so a it will consequence. learn right so it will learn so here's the theory if i stop you having your xbox you'll learn not to say no how many times does that actually work Never. Because you don't. What you learn is your parents done something mean to you. You don't know why because your brain doesn't have the ability to understand the consequences. So I always say, you know, sometimes you do need to take technology away because it is too much. But it needs to be really short because a few hours later they'll have forgotten the reason why they lost the technology and just know that they've lost the technology. And the second thing is you should give them a buyback. Control is really important for us all. Feeling like we've got control and autonomy, especially for kids where there's so little they can control. So if you give them a buyback, it means that they can lose the technology, but they can do something to get it back. It makes them feel in control. It works for you, it works for them, because like there's nothing worse than the parent who's taken their kid's technology off them, because now you have to deal with a kid with no technology. It's punishing yourself too. Nobody wants to do that, right? But if you give them a buyback, you both win out of it, and it makes them feel that they're in control. And it's fair. Because I, I remember growing up thinking a lot of the time it wasn't fair. Yes. I can't wait to be an adult because adults have got control of stuff. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, and I think this is what we got back to with rules or boundaries and punishment or... Um, correction. Correction. You know, it's, it's all down to that. It's like, what works best? And, and I'm like very strong on, did it work? Cool. Carry on. Because you get people who are like, well, you we can't do it that way or you shouldn't do it that way. Right. But did it work? if it worked we're good right i don't care how it how you got it to work if it worked good but then we've got repercussions as well so if you're punished by taking it away and have a screaming child there's repercussions emotionally there's repercussions physically with you haven't dealt with screaming child yeah you know same with the dogs right the, the, the type of punishment that we um, give out everything comes with a cost yes yeah so if you can if you can work in a sort of partnership way where they learn then yes, you're going to have exceptions, but you have exceptions even if you punish them. Punishment doesn't mean people stop doing what they're doing. Absolutely. You know, because otherwise, if punishment meant you stop, then nobody would ever get punished more than once. That's true. <laughs> you know? And as a parent, what is your priority um, in the relationship with you and your child? What, what, I mean, because obviously we're going to have things like we don't want the um, child to see us. But a lot of people with dogs are really worried about how is it going to see me if I do this thing? Explain that. How's it so goes? if we correct the dog, if yeah. we withhold something. So just now I'm going through this thing with Toosie where I'm doing positive only. I've completely raised her to not have, she's not even heard the word no, right? So it's, right. Um, everything's been lovely. 
which is a, a wonderful pup, really, really easy puppy. But she's biting my coat, as you know, the back of it's completely shredded. And I've been ignoring it, I've been redirecting it, I've been going, here's some food. She's still doing this behavior, the jumping up as well. And yep. she's now getting bigger and, and more able to do these things. So um, I've been trying to go, right, can I? This is what we try to teach people these days to ignore beha- unwanted behaviors. Because right. people were really heavy handed in the past with yep. dogs and children as yes. well. Um, so we're trying to teach them we, we're not going to be heavy handed, we, we're not going to physically punish anymore. Yep. We're trying to redirect. And to me, redirect is probably another word for correct. Okay. Um, so with correction, I think I'd like to have a, a distinction between punishment and correction. I think I think that makes sense. Like, you know, it's almost substitution. For me, I all, I talk about all of the shiny thing. You know, it's like that's really powerful with kids when they're younger. All of a shiny thing. You know, if kids having a tantrum, you don't sit there and logic them out of it. <laughs> Actually, I don't think this is the right time that's to have me. this. That's me when you when you're with me. I'm I'm trying to like use. Hi kids, do you want to pay attention to this this thing over your back? <laughs> Watching Jess get frustrated, it was really cool. Um, so, but you need to do all look a shiny thing. You need to kind of, so with a kid, you'll go like, you know, here's chocolate or you know, Piper to the car or let's go and do this. And, and, and kids have such a short attention span because of this lack of consequences that you can do that really easily. And dogs will be the same. You can really easily redirect. It, yeah. yeah and, and, you know, it's like when you tell people to call them to you, you want them to be shiny things. You know, you want dogs to go to the shiny thing. Yes. Um, whereas the instinct is to go, get away from there, come back, you know, and, and that's not going to be a shiny thing. Absolutely. So, so that is correction. That's not, it's not a punishment thing. It's a like, oh, look, a shiny thing, and let's just distract you from that. Absolutely. So for me, uh, the correction is the, if the behavior is a train track, and, yeah. and we're headed towards a thing that we can see coming, and we switch the track to a yeah. different path, right? Yeah. Um, so the, the, but they don't know that if they carried on that track, that there would be something wrong there. So by correcting, Absolutely. they never get a chance to experience Absolutely. doing it wrong. Yeah, because the dog, like, well, we'll go back to Toosie. She doesn't know that jumping up and biting the jacket is this terrible thing, which is why I've not told her no. I've just yep. allowed her to do it, and I was hoping she might just grow out of it, right? But she's approaching the age where um, her brain is going to turn into an adult brain, which is shocking for some people because they don't realize that five months is the cutoff because six months hormones start coming out. Right. And that's a different game, right? Yep. That's the everything's gone to pot. I'm going to question everything you've taught me. You yeah. Um. That's the, that's the new so I want everything to, the foundation to be set before right um so I have been um I know the consequences that if I don't and this is this is a hard bit for people to think ahead I really think a lot of people don't think ahead yep. so I know that if I don't sort this out she's going to be doing the same thing to a child or to a person she's ripped my jacket to shreds yep. right owners of children are not going to be very pleased if my therapy puppy is ripping kids jackets yep. uh, even out of fun even out of cuteness yep. the, the difficulty is that she's such a cutesy little but a little dog that um it's heartbreaking to think about saying no to her right and the, the bit to remember as you've just said is that she doesn't know that it's a bad behavior she's nope. just going this is cool this is how to get attention i used to get picked up when i did this yep um i carried her when she was tired that was her signal i'm tired right so um that track that she was on, she has no idea that that was a bad behaviour. So there's zero point in me in shouting no and, and hitting her or doing anything that other people might do yep. because it's not a bad behaviour, it's no. just a behaviour. So I'm trying to switch to another track that's like, so my, my first port of call was reward her for not doing it. Yeah. Right? That's not enough nope. to, to get her off the track. She's still got that, that old um, fanatic okay. response. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, she's still got that old pathway that says this is what I need to do. 
So um, I need to correct her, but in a way that's both um, a consequence of, of behavior at the time, mm -hmm. but also teaching her to do another behavior. So yep. this, is the, this is the firm track that we want to do. And then we're, we're in the realms of punishment then, something that's big enough for her to go, I don't want to do that. Yeah. But also that's very different than punishment as in, right, she's done that. I'm now going to tell her off half an hour after she's done it, or even minutes yeah, after yeah. she's done it. So, you know, and, and this is where um, old style dog training, and I've seen it, and one of the reasons that I became um, running classes in Dundee was the, the class that I went to, it was very much, you know, it was punishment. Yeah. It was, and it was punishment through learning as well. Like, it wasn't sit on your bum, here's a bit of food. It was sit on your bum because I'm going to put you into a sit. And if you move, I'm going to put you into a sit again. It right. really hands on, right, you yeah, know. Yeah. And kind of uncomfortable to watch, actually. Yeah. But that was what they did. Yeah. You know, kind of like with kids. Um, in the olden days, it was don't speak until you're spoken to, and you'll sit there until or else. Yes. Right? Yeah, yeah. And we all want to move away from that model. Yeah, yeah, That's absolutely. an uncomfortable model, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we're stuck somewhere between okay, we know positive only doesn't work yep. because that's stupid. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't even make sense in, in logic terms. But also how, how can I be the nicest owner I can be but also not have behaviours that are yeah. gonna get her into trouble? Yeah, you have to know. A child has to know and a dog has to know that there are some things you don't do. So when I when I talk to parents about punishment, I talk about not having consequences because a child doesn't understand consequences unless it's unsafe to do so. What age, by the way, does the child start to be more aware of? So yesterday, for example, um, when we were speaking about, you know, don't don't growl at the puppy, and he had to see you growling for yes. him to understand that wasn't comfortable for him to direct yep. experience of it. So we were talking about experience versus words. At what age does that become easier for him to understand the words? Uh, well, technically, very technically, the brain is not capable of understanding the words without the experience until your mid-twenties. Holy shit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> also, you have learned all the lessons that you need to learn that your brain will use for the rest of your life by the time you're 16. 16. So 16. That's, that's the five-month-old micro dogs. Yeah. Then, right? So you'll have learned all the lessons, even though your brain's not actually capable of understanding those lessons and what's happened. You'll have learned them and locked them in. So that's your foundation. So that's stuck for the rest of your life. Um, you might think, therefore, that a 16-year-old understands more than a 20-year-old, but they don't because pretty much at 16, their brain stops and it doesn't complete its development till mid-20s. So um, that's why you kind of think they're older, they should understand. Still don't, still don't get it. Brain doesn't understand consequences, but because they've got more experience, right? They've got more frame of reference. The older they get, the more they think they know, but they still only know what's in their frame of reference. So let's say, for example, um, <coughs> in France, you have wine with dinner. It's normal to have wine with dinner in France. All kids have wine with dinner, diluted wine a lot of the time, but they have wine with dinner. And so French kids, when they're old enough to go to university, don't have this massive novelty about alcohol and don't go over the top. British kids are very often told no alcohol, not allowed it. So the minute they get out on their own, freedom. they're freedom and they, they go too far. If they've experienced it growing up, then they know the consequences, there's no novelty. So, so depending on the type of experiences you've had in life will make you feel like that person's more or less kind of switched on, mm -hmm. but actually it's still experience based. It's only what they've actually experienced that they can learn from. So okay. I couldn't say that, you know, technically 
I could have 13 year olds and they're more likely to listen, maybe because they've got the habit of when I say don't do it, don't do it. Maybe because they've got more experience of the consequences of when I say don't do it, don't do it. But they still ultimately, a 13 year old would just as much pick a puppy up because it wants to pick it up and put it in the pram and be helpful as an eight year old or a six year old because no, none of the three of them would understand if I drop the puppy, then it will hurt the puppy. Yeah. Unless they've already had puppies and they've learnt by doing that, or they've been dropped themselves and they know what it feels like. Yeah, it's just such an important thing for us to understand that kids can't understand by just telling them something. We have to experience it. And, and most people don't understand that because most, as you say, the school system, parenting system is geared for telling. And then all the emotion and the frustration comes from telling and not being listened to, which feels disrespectful feels like you're a bad parent, feels like you're doing it wrong because your kid doesn't listen and then they get in trouble at school. Yeah. But they're just, you know, kids do behaviour for all sorts of different reasons and it's not because they're bad kids. You don't get really bad kids. And, very then, rare. and then what happens is that when they do a behaviour that we consider horrendous, the person gets really upset. The, the adult, sorry, gets yeah. really upset and the child then goes, I'm a bad kid. Yeah. So, um, so a kid yesterday putting the puppy in the pram wasn't very high up, kid super enthusiastic, it was the end of all the time the puppies had been there, was trying to be helpful, you know, a couple of other people had the puppies, he was just unlucky, he had the squiggler, you know, and the squiggler squiggled out of his arms. It wasn't from a very high height, but the adults had said to him repeatedly, do not pick up the puppies while standing up, and he picked up the puppy to put it in the pram, and he dropped the puppy. The puppy was fine, it was one of the squidgy squiddlers, you know, it kind of rolled over and went, what happened there? And it was in the pram, but the adult was not fine. The adult was like, get over here. I told you not to do that. You drop the puppy now. Oh, I'm going to die. If anything's happened to the puppy, this would be terrible. And he was absolutely thinking. But, but the adult's also thinking, is Jess going to come back? Is yeah. the puppy okay? You know, the adult's got this whole host yeah. of... They've got all the consequences, right? The adult gets consequences. They've, they've got it all mapped out. They've got every single possible outcome that are all the negative ones, none of the positive ones. And what you've got <laughs> is a kid sitting on a step dealing with all that dealing with all that like in <laughs> tears feeling and he's not going to feel that he did something wrong he's going to feel like he's a bad person that he did this to the puppy and what is wrong with me that i didn't listen and there's nothing wrong with him he was a totally normal kid yeah, absolutely accidents happen he didn't do it on purpose he never would have done it on purpose because actually he was enthusiastic about the puppy so i went and had a little chat with him and told him and then brought him to the pram and let him fuss the puppies and sort of like they're fine they're okay they're all there you know this happens it's not you it's just something that happened you wouldn't have done it on so purpose. did you do this with your daughter growing up were you aware of this before you had yes. all this stuff so i i started my therapy journey when my daughter was three and when my daughter was three she started saying are you happy mummy and i was like yes darling i'm happy and she kept saying are you happy mummy and i go on twitter and i'm like my daughter keeps asking me if i'm happy wow and they said she's just learning empathy and i said not very well then is she because i keep saying this <laughs> and she keeps asking but it was one of those moments that made me realize it was okay me being screwed up but it wasn't okay for her for me to screw up her so that was my motivation to change and it overlapped with finding trevor um in harley street so i started the therapy with him and like when I see my clients, it changed my life, you know, from the first session, everything started changing. So um, I then trained to be a therapist. And as I became a practicing therapist, um, <coughs> I, I realized I had brain development. I studied brain development. 
I looked at the impact on my child. I will look to the impact on me and where all the stuff came from and, um, and change the way I started parenting, change the way I interacted with her. Because, you know, for me, the goal is for her to be happy, resilient, comfortable in herself. And could you see any differences when she went to school between her behavior and other kids? Yeah, really? yeah, it was really? huge. It was huge because, wow. uh, you know, she's a girl or not anymore, but <laughs> she started <laughs> off as a girl um, and incredibly insecure. Um, girls are, they're paranoid and insecure and they're very judgmental of each other and um, they use words rather than violence. Well, I've and, met her a few times and she doesn't seem insecure at all. No, she's, she's very not. confident. No, she'll tell you she is, but she's not. She's. I mean, her friends love her because she's confident and they don't make them doesn't make them feel bad about themselves, really supportive, really understanding, builds people up. And yeah, so we, we put a lot of work in so that when they went to high school, they just flourished and they've been flourishing ever since. You know, they're normal. They get kind of get insecure about things, get anxious about things, but it's it's a it's a state change rather than identity. It's not something wrong with me, it's that this is making me nervous, this is making me anxious. So that's a huge thing though, identifying the factors that are yeah. Attributing the stress because yeah. we all feel stress and anxiety, but it's the recovery rate that you talk about of how to get back to and whether it's affecting your daily function. Yeah. Right? yeah. And so as long as it's a behaviour thing, that's normal. But when it's an identity thing, then that's something bigger that needs dealing with because you know you don't get to your identity that way. It's not that simple. So yeah. So she's been an experiment, but actually, unfortunately. <laughs> The, the thing that I've learned is it is impossible to not have a screwed up child because actually by not being screwed up, we've screwed her up because now she doesn't fit in with her peers. Her peers have all got stuff going on, issues, and she doesn't and have different. those issues and she's different. So actually, she's screwed up by not being screwed up. You just literally can't win. Can't win. You can't win. <laughs> but you can be, you can make life a lot easier for yourself. So it's a lot less stressful for me and my husband. It's a lot less emotional. It's a lot less frustrating. And just briefly before we finish, because we've gone yeah, on again, haven't we? Yeah. Um, so she, like a lot of girls, are uh, playing with their sexual identity. Yeah. Um, not playing. That's a terrible word. No. Um, exploring. A good word. Exploring, and it's very um, modern. So when I was at school, it was the emos and the goths, right? Yep. And yeah, who am I? Yes. And it's become a really popular thing just now. And a lot of parents are uh, confused, horrified, relaxed, you know, yeah. whatever yeah. <laughs> about it. Um, what's your sort of take on it? Do you think it's just a phase because it's a bit of a fashion just now? Or what's your... I think it's a, it's a really awkward subject. Because um, we're supposed to be all PC about it and like it's fine yeah. and everything goes. I think, you know, I think there are multiple levels that I see having worked with people who are trans, who have worked who sexuality issues. And I think the core is about wanting to fit in, to be accepted, to fit in, to belong. That's what it comes down to with any group, right? So any group that we identified with growing up, it was so that we were part of something. And there was always a kind of irony. Um, it's a safety of, and fit. Yeah, so you're kind of against a uniform, but all the goths would be wearing basically a uniform. They'd all dress and look the same, but <laughs> it made them feel that they were different and they were separate to somebody else. So the problem is not all of that. I, I think, you know, experiment have a play, look at who you are, who cares? Like, I really couldn't care less. You know, what you do in your personal life is none of my business, what my child does is none of my business, as long as she's happy and Not hurting anybody else. And not hurting anybody else. Um, but I want her to feel okay in herself and not have to change who she is for the sake of somebody else. That's where it kind of goes wrong. Absolutely. So, So the people I have, so very often somebody who is gay really struggles because they need to be accepted. They need people to accept their sexuality. Uh, and that's the problem I have is who, who cares? 
it actually for me it's more relevant whether you drink Starbucks coffee or coffee at all than do you like to have sex with boys or girls you know for me it affects my life way more if you don't drink coffee so it's the being true to yourself that's being true to yourself is important. Than... and actually we're so desperate to fit in as kids and we so little um fit in as kids that um the problem is that we're then looking to external we talked about this the external locus of control we're looking to somebody else outside of us to validate who we are and that should never be the case you should be okay who you are no matter what parents siblings school friends none of them matter because they've got their own stuff going on so if you fancy boys if you fancy girls nobody else should care and you shouldn't need to tell anybody and it doesn't define who you are it's just your sexuality if so you want... the more outward somebody is about making a display the more likely they are to be trying to fit in yeah and... they're trying to fit in and actually the reason that they're unhappy is because nobody ever fits in because somebody will always judge you and the more you try and get them to accept you the more they'll judge you and we know there are lots of parents out there that will judge their kids and will not accept their kids we almost need a, a subject at school about learning that it's okay to be completely different yes. and not having to fit in and yep. knowing who you are yep. on the inside but we don't teach that we teach sexuality we teach race we teach so we actually create the labels to teach to not create labels you we're know doing the opposite. and we're doing the opposite so actually it doesn't matter what race somebody is what accent they have what color hair they have and what their sexuality is it doesn't matter none of that matters because actually you're not living their life as long as they're living their life who cares but you know because we are programmed to need to fit in then it does really matter to the individual and so you know we eternally disappoint our daughter or son as they're trying to be at the moment as they're currently identifying as a boy because we just go okay <laughs> i don't care you be who you want to be i don't it doesn't bother me that's apparently way too supportive and doesn't give them anything to kick back against you know but it's uh it's an interesting one and, and for me that's that's the thing i know we all have our stuff i don't judge anybody for their stuff i don't judge anybody for the things they've done in their life and where they are and how much they're struggling i know i can help everybody if they'll give me a chance but it doesn't matter to me what has gone before because i understand the way the brain works in the same way for you it doesn't really matter what's gone before because you can help them with their dog they just need to give you a chance <laughs> you know and for you it's frustrating when you can't help people who you see the dogs are struggling and it's not good for the dog or the person and it's equally frustrating for me yeah well i think that there's a lack of knowledge that stress and long-term stress can cause physical health mm -hmm. what's the opposite of benefit detriment thank you <laughs> my brain's gone now yeah, yeah we're, we're, we're actually gonna have to wrap it up anyway because we've been talking too long what's our what's our snappy ending jess i mean you know, it's like we're just gonna go we've been talking too long and leave it there if you're looking for help get help <laughs> go, the, the reason we're experts is because we've done this lots and we know how to help it, it's not there's no risk of failure okay let me let me end with the post-it note guy right so there was a guy trying to invent glue that would stick aircraft parts together and he was in a lab and he came up with a glue that stuck and unstuck. Now, if this guy had a terrible fear of failure, Stephen Silver or something he was called, if this guy had a terrible fear of failure, he would have banged his head against the desk, gone, I'm the worst scientist ever. I cannot even get close to a glue that sticks aircraft parts together. But he wasn't. He went, oh, well, that's really interesting. That's a really interesting kind of glue. I wonder what I could use it for. And he sold it to 3M and we got post-it notes.
So, so his failure became a massive success. His failure was a massive success because he didn't see it as a failure. He saw it as, what can I learn from that? So when you're struggling, instead of thinking of it as being a failure or being broken, just go, well, how can I use that and what can I do with it?